Empire Live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the show that takes you to the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. So how you doing today, Rod? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Lee? I'm doing great. Do we have Jason today? Yes. Jason Goodman. There you are. Hello. It's a Truth Tuesday, and our guest host, co-host, is the one, the only, Jason Goodman. How you doing, Jason? Very well, Lee. Thank you. So, we're post-election, and we've got a lot to talk about there, but Rod's put together a great show for us today. First off, in the first hour, coming straight out of Moscow, we've got the great Mark Sloboda joining us. Then in the second hour, talking immigration with the great Judge Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. And Jason, I'm querying, do you remember by any chance the name of the show? I do believe, Lee, that this is the backstory. Well done. You know, I, I don't know what I'd do if you said, no, I don't actually remember this name. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't do that. I'd just be kind of screwed there. So, no, it's the alley-oop. You set it up, I dunk it in. So the, uh, the election is still kind of going on, but it was announced last night, and I got to say, Rod and I called it, and it's not what we wanted to happen, but we called it. We said we did not think Kerry Lake was going to pull it off. You yeah. said that, I believe, I believe Friday, Rod? Yeah, Friday and yesterday, yeah. Yeah, Friday, but days ago. And again, I'm, I like Kerry Lake. I'm not a hater. But as an adult, you need to be able to separate out what you want to happen and what you realistically think is going to happen. Does that make sense? Not that you have to be an adult, Jason, but does that make sense? <laughs> it does. I think we might have a slightly different viewpoint on exactly what happened. I do not believe that the results were authentically arrived at, and I think you disagree with that. I think there's nothing about Arizona, which is voted for Jeff Flake, John McCain, There's and and given the fact that the Secretary of State was running the election that she was in, yeah. uh, you know, that's uh, suspicious. Right. But, uh, but I think, you, you know, whatever, Carrie Lake lost. She did not win the election. Correct. I don't, I don't know what other words were to use. Well, I mean, I agree with that. That's the official condition that we're in right now. But the way that we arrived at that loss, I have a number of questions about that I don't think we're going to get an adequate opportunity or due process to explore. Well, yeah, I know we won't get that. So yeah. I, I agree, we agree with you completely. <laughs> exactly. But the other elections we had today, one of them anyway, is the intra-political elections where the party, the people vote for their leaders. And in that election, Kevin McCarthy is once again the leader of the House for GOP. And a lot of people don't like McCarthy, including me. He's, his stump speech was out there 
accusing Putin of being Hitler. Yeah, that was bad. He's not a guy who I want in charge of anything, but he won. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell, head of the Senate, is being challenged by the senator from Florida, Rick Scott. And I don't think he's going to win. These inter-party elections are very tough because Mitch McConnell, you know, there's a saying, you perhaps heard it. If you take if you take a shot at the king, make sure you hit him. Yeah. Right? You've don't heard miss. that. Yeah, don't and, miss. Right. right. Exactly right. So if you're going after Mitch McConnell, make sure you hit him. Make sure yep. you take him out. Because Mitch McConnell is a vengeful Mother Hubbard. Yes, sort of a puffy, wet-looking, vengeful Mother Hubbard. Yes. Yeah, a Nelly, some might call him. But, uh, <laughs> he always appears moist to me on camera. He's just like this drippy, wet, unhealthy-looking guy. He's like crawled out of a shell, his turtle yes. shell. Yes, yes, exactly. Because he does look like a turtle. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, they're having that election tomorrow. And I don't think McConnell's going to go anywhere. But I think it's significant that someone's challenging him. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. The first step is someone challenges you and they probably lose. But at least his leadership is not unchallenged. Does that make sense, Jason? Yep. And isn't Rick Scott a Trump ally? He's he's I've I've met Rick Scott before. He's sort of a Trump ally. He is, but he's not, you know, uh, articulate or a bomb thrower enough. Whereas a good Trump ally, because he's not a guy who comes out there, you know, Ted Cruz, not a Trump ally, does a better job. You know, Ted has taken on some people that, the, for instance, the head of the FBI. Yeah. Over, you know, over. Uh, yeah. And Jack was, Dorsey, he's he's had some moments. You're right. Right, right. So Ted Cruz, he took on the Ray Epps story. Right, exactly, right. Talking to that woman who refused to answer about the FBI and Ray Epps, right. Now, what do you remember? Just scan your memory banks, Spock. What do you <laughs> remember Rick Scott coming out and being so good and bold on? Uh, that would be nothing, Captain. <laughs> that's, 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 that's correct. A little Sulu there. So, yes. oh my. But, yeah. uh, but. And that's my point. You're not not missing anything. He's not a guy. So I would say Trump needs allies who can articulate his positions better than he can. Does that make sense? Well, and it seems like he might be, you know, kind of marshalling the forces now, because last week The Hill had an article which was talking about Trump touts Scott as likely candidate to replace McConnell. And then now here we see a week later, he's saying that. So I wonder if Trump is not saying, hey, you know, who is here that maybe I wasn't so tight with before who wants to stand? Because, you know, people who are in the Senate or in Congress are going to have a different impression of Donald Trump going into 2024 than they did going into 2016. And some of them who had a positive impression then may not now. And some who didn't have a positive impression then may have a better impression now. So the deck has been reshuffled somewhat. In some senses, you know, 
a, a guy who could, I think, possibly beat McConnell on the first round because he's got what I'll call gravitas is a guy like Chuck Grassley. Chuck yeah. Grassley's been in the Senate forever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but that's all part of the problem, isn't it, Lee? Why do we have all these octogenarians running the government? Well, because, you know, it seems like that's a better move than AOC. Mm, I want somebody who's like 50, 60, something like that. Well, uh, again, how would you feel about Cruz? Cruz would probably like it, but he just does not have the guts to take on authority, really. Well, he's part of, I think— I mean, look, we, you know, we still haven't answered the questions about what is Rafael Cruz doing all around Dealey Plaza and the international trade mart before, during the JFK assassination. That's a big question, and, and he's right there. And we talked about some of that stuff, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of questions. But let me ask a general question that uh, relates to what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that there's some things— we are simply never going to get justice on. And I'm, you know, I was talking to Tyler Nixon about the JFK thing. And Tyler Nixon expressed some depressing reality, which is the likelihood of the CIA files ever coming out, you know, while it makes any difference at all. If they have released it by now, they're unlikely to. Would you agree with that, Jason? I do. I'll I'll fall short of agreeing with never, because I think that's a very, very, very long time. But you qualified the statement by saying that it wouldn't happen within a time frame where it would make any difference. And I agree with that. For instance, the files being released at the Mars uh, facility as President E4 (laughs) does not really help anybody. Elon Musk the fourth, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or President X or whatever his little baby's name is. Right. That that guy will be like, oh, yeah, by the way, 200 years ago, somebody shot this person that you don't even know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. He's exactly right. So, yes. you know, if we found out the CIA was behind Lincoln's assassination, that mm. doesn't really do us much good. Does it make sense? Well, the most exciting thing about that would be the revelation that the CIA has existed for over 100 years more than we Realized. And you know what? In some incarnation, that might not be the most insane assertion anybody's ever come up with. No. And the OSS was essentially the CIA before the CIA, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then wasn't was there not- some British? Yeah, it was. And wasn't there some British thing that created the OSS? Yes. And so I've talked about we're getting David Icke on the show again. Oh, so, great. I'm going to ask him about some of that stuff. I want to ask him specifically how he sees the WEF fit into a roundtable. Does that make sense? Uh Uh-huh. Because I think the WEF and Klaus Schwab, and by the way, we have a a good clip about Klaus Schwab later, uh, is the new roundtable, is the new trilateral commission and CFR and so on. But I want to see what David Icke, you know, the pioneer at exposing his stuff, thinks about the WBF. I know he doesn't like him, but does he think Mm -hmm. they're actually a new generation, the iPhone 14 of the roundtable? Does it make sense, Jason? 
I I did see him at Anarchapulco give his presentation on the round table, and I don't specifically recall the mention of the WEF, but knowing David Icke's work and having spoken to him a few times, I do believe that he will say that that is the current modern incarnation of this, you know, hidden hand of power. And just briefly, an internet search reveals that in 1941, Roosevelt created a civilian agency, a civilian agency within the White House to oversee American intelligence, which was called the Coordinator of Information. That was dissolved about a year later when they created the OSH, which became the CIA, which causes me to wonder if perhaps someone was not concerned about an elected official taking control of this type of intelligence organization, and they wanted to wrestle it away from the president. Interesting. Now, one reason it's a good thing we got Mark Slobodan straight out of Moscow. Have you seen the reports that Russia launched a missile into Poland? I have, and I saw a good follow-up from uh, Paul Joseph Watson saying that a reporter in Poland is reporting that it appears to be a, a portion of a Russian missile that was shot down by Ukraine. A portion of it is what it appears to be have landed in uh, Poland. And of course, Russia has officially said they did not launch a missile strike on Poland. And I'm sure Mark will give us a straight skinny right after this break. Jason, won't you please do us the honor of taking us to the boom? This is the backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington DC joining us now from Moscow Russia the great we are honored and pleased to have the great geopolitical analyst and political commentator Mark Soboda with us hey Mark how you doing Lee thanks for having me it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory Welcome back, it's Mark. great to have you on, Mark. Jason. We know you. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks, Mark. But I, I, when I looked at the headlines, I saw Russia fired a missile into Poland. Then I read the story on Fox and I said, it said Poland is not reported that, but a U.S. intelligence official did. So I said, aha, maybe not. So what's going yeah. on, Mark? What do you know over there? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, uh, it's true. Uh, Vladimir Putin had a thing for uh, some Polish cows at a, at a farm on the um, Ukrainian-Polish border, and uh, those cows just had to go. I mean, that, that it, 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 they, they, it, there was just no question. Uh, it was an aggression against cows. No, uh, seriously. Were, were they Nazi um, cows? They, they Nazi cows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anyway, um, they Russia launched uh, a very large salvo of cruise missiles, uh, primarily at the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure, the uh, mostly substan- uh, substation transformer stations, uh, also some thermal plants um, uh, today. Um, supposedly somewhere around 100, possibly slightly more. 
uh, missiles. Um, we're looking primarily at KH-101s, KH-555s, air-launched um, uh, cruise missiles launched from strategic bombers. But um, there uh, appears to also have been uh, some caliber uh, naval-launched cruise missiles as well. Um, it, it, it seems that this is impossible because I've, I've heard at least – I don't know, 50, 60 times now that Russia's running out of missiles, according to the Western mainstream media. It doesn't have any more missiles left to fire, but right. they just hit with the largest salvo yet, according to, <laughs> to Ukraine. And Ukraine claims they've shot all of them down, but also claims that their substation transformers just spontaneously blew up across the country. Oh. Right. Well, so well that I, happens often, doesn't that, it? That happens, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that so, could be true. So now uh, there are reports that there has been an explosion at a farm in Poland um, uh, across from the uh, border in West Ukraine and that two people have died. Local media reports in Poland are claiming a missile strike. There have emerged pictures online that do endeared to be some type of missile. Other local Polish reports are saying it wasn't a missile at all and that it was uh, a, a local farmers hit some type of uh, pipeline underground uh, when they were doing work and blew themselves up. I don't. I don't know about that because I've what I've seen. I see it looks like some missile debris. However, um, everything that I have seen online tends to make me believe that it would it appears to be an S three hundred, an air defense missile. Um, the Kiev regime had a large number of S-300 air defense systems, Soviet legacy systems, uh, at the start of the conflict. At this point, they only have a few left. Um, but uh, the, it's a very good system, actually. But the models that uh, Ukraine has are very old, and their missiles are very old, and they've been stuck to actually getting them secondhand from other Warsaw Pact countries, and they haven't proved very reliable. And we've seen several hits in Kiev, um, supposedly of Russian missiles hitting residential buildings that later military experts say, yeah, yeah actually kind of looks like a, an air defense missile uh, that Kiev uh, fired off and either fell or uh, misfired or the like. And that could be uh, the case here. Uh, nothing is confirmed at this point. The Polish uh, government called a meeting of the National Security Council and they are meeting on it. All kinds of rhetoric is going online, particularly from the Baltic countries. Uh, the, US, the Pentagon says they have no information uh, and they're investigating the matter, but they will not speculate. But they have no uh, information to confirm this, at least as of a few minutes ago. Um, the um, Russian government has denied that they were firing any missiles anywhere in that area and that anything that happened in Poland um, had nothing to do with them or any Russian missiles um, and that um, – this is some type of Polish provocation, um, wh whether they mean a, a actual false flag or making a deal out of a potential Ukrainian air defense missile. Um, 
it it seems to me that that would be a long way for an air defense missile or a Russian missile to go off course, though. And it doesn't seem any likely targets around. It could very well be a false flag, either by Kiev deliberately launching an air defense missile into Poland or possibly by the Polish government itself. I suppose it's not outside the realm of possibility that Russian cruise missile could have gone crazily off course and pushed the absolute limits of its range and landed on a farm in Poland. Uh, anything is possible at this point, but but I think the most likely scenario is whether intentional or not, it is an S-300 uh, Ukrainian air defense missile. So that's interesting. And of course, we know for a fact that Ukraine repeatedly lies, constantly. Cor- correct. I mean, We've seen even over, over, the 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 um, okay, go, go uh, Kiev regime presidential advisor, the advisor to Zelensky, uh, one of them, Alexei Aristovich, who sometimes is called Zelensky's brain. Uh, he's former Ukrainian intelligence. Um, he has given interviews uh, on um, Ukrainian TV where he basically says, of course, we lie all the time. And he's like, wow. and they're like, how do, how do you come up with, oh, he says, we're at war. Of course we lie. You know, everything, every, every other thing I say about Russia is a lie. And uh, <laughs> he, I mean, he, he's real Goebbels-esque like that. He's really, um, he, he's not afraid to, to, to completely confound with this. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's, more honest. It's just that everything seems to be a game with him all the time. And uh, he was questioned uh, in the same conversation about how they come up with the numbers that they're giving out. And he says, it's simple. I just added zero onto everything. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) So, I mean, yes, the Kiev regime has lied. I mean, whether you're talking the ghost of Kiev, the Snake Island hoax, they've lied from day one and they lied again and again. And we have seen repeatedly um, their air defense systems go awry, strike residential buildings, and then they try to claim that Russia is deliberately targeting uh, residential buildings and the like. And there's every possibility that this could be that. But that is speculation at at this point because we, we really don't have enough confirmed evidence. So we haven't really talked to you since it was announced last Wednesday that Russia was pulling out of Kherson City, moving across the river. So let's talk about that. But let's first play the propaganda about Kherson that's being played here in the West. We have the clip ready, Command Central, the Kherson propaganda clip. Hit it. Does the FBI have confidential human sources? Uh, Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when. Even now, because that's what you told us two years ago. May I finish? 
about when we do and do not and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, but to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being opened? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a no. Can you not tell the American people no? We did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol. Gentlemen's time has expired. You should not read anything into my decision uh, not to share information. Director Ray, confidential gentlemen's time has expired. So wow. that, that was obviously a different clip. That was Christopher Ray <laughs> talking about January 6th, speaking of liars. So we'll talk yeah. about that later. But Mark Zavoda, what is your take on Kurdistan? What I'm seeing is... A lot of Russians are not as freaked out about this as they were uh, when Russia last the the last uh, area they pulled out of. And you mean a lot of people say, yes, exactly yes. right. Thanks. And a lot of people say that this was a, basically a good military move. What do you think, Mark Svoboda? Okay, so I've seen the opposite. I think that a lot of Russians are extremely upset about this. The the political talk shows in Russia, uh, there is a lot of dooming and glooming, a lot of gnashing of teeth, pulling out of hair, uh, accusations of betrayal. Um, I, I would say the opposite. I would say that everything I've seen is that Russians uh, in general are a lot more upset about this. Um, and they, I mean, uh, the, uh, Russia did just recognize Kherson City after the results of a referendum on uh, joining Russia uh, and accept Kherson into part of the Russian Federation. So, and it is a significant city. It is the capital of the Kherson region that the Russian forces withdrew uh, across the Dnieper uh, to the left bank of the Dnieper away from. So, I mean, there's there's every reason. And, and Mark, what do you personally think of? Do you think this was because uh, you had talked about it on this show before that pullout had happened? You had raised the possibility that they might pull out of Kursan, right? You saw I had said it was possible. But I, I mean, uh, I, there were things said and there was questions of supply. But I also saw a lot of evidence that Russia was building up defensive forces there, and it appeared that they were evacuating civilians. They got some half, more than half the population of the city out. Basically, everyone who wanted to and could leave, right? They're now about a little less than half the population remained behind. Maybe people didn't want to leave. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's not easy to go into the life of, of essentially a refugee. Right. Um, uh, the, a certain part of the population certainly uh, welcomed uh, Kiev regime troops. I think in Kherson City, it was probably a minority. But even if it was like, say, 20 percent, that's not insubstantial. Uh, but there were a lot of people who, you know, uh, remained behind, although I, I would think that slightly more left. But I thought they were moving them out uh, in order to uh, stage an urban defense of the city. And while I knew a withdrawal 
was possible, I thought that they would do a fighting withdrawal if necessary. I think they would fight first. And it has to be said that Russian defense lines in Kherson, well north of, of Kherson city and stretching across the region, they were not penetrated. There was no battlefield victory, right? Russia defense lines held and they held strong and everything that the Kiev regime forces threw at them was repulsed with very heavy casualties on the Kiev regime side because it's open step. They're charging across open step against a uh, it was a heavily uh, defended force uh, reinforced uh, in recent weeks uh, with superior artillery, superior rocket systems, uh, air dominance. Um, and they took heavy casualties, but Russia still made the decision to withdraw. And supposedly the reason is they didn't believe that in the long term they could maintain supply lines. Now, the Kiev regime did have a very large uh, force there uh, north of Kherson, uh, particularly in terms of manpower. Although a lot of that was relatively untrained, poorly equipped um uh, conscripts, uh, territorial defense and the like. But I mean, quantity does have a quality all of its own, it has been said. But there was no penetration and Russia withdrew. And what's clear, when they announced that they were withdrawing, the withdrawal was already essentially complete. They did this and somehow U.S. intelligence, we heard Mark Milley comment you know, that this could take Russia days, if not weeks. It's a really complicated maneuver to withdraw, uh, you know, uh, in front of an attacking force and, and the like. And by the next morning, Russia already had everybody out by 5 a.m. the next morning. And that took everyone by surprise. Obviously, it took the Americans by surprise. So I think a lot of people were taken by surprise of this. I have heard some speculation that uh, the the general now in charge of the whole theater, uh, General uh, Surovikin, known as General Armageddon, that uh, he had wanted actually before he even became overall commander to withdraw from Harrison. Some people have suggested, though, it wasn't because he couldn't get enough supplies across the Dnieper to to maintain the defensive force there, but because he couldn't get enough supplies to launch an offensive from that position. So he saw it at the end of the day as a a, a waste, essentially, uh, that he could put those forces to better use elsewhere, although that's a pretty cold-blooded decision uh, about a, a significant city in southern Ukraine that uh, supposedly had just uh, you know, at least according to the Russian constitution, had just become part of Russia. So there's there's a lot of, of questions. Um, I just put up on my uh, uh, my own uh, website this week, I'm putting up uh, an examination of the pros and cons. Uh, the Kiev regime had been hitting bridges across the Dnieper, but Russia had also been erecting pontoon bridges, not as reliable, but um, and had been repairing the main bridges. They had also been firing on the Kaholska Reservoir Dam to the north of Harrison City, up the Dnieper. Now, that is a, both a, a solid bridge, a dam, and a hydroelectric plant. And it acts, that reservoir uh, is where the water that flows into the Crimean Canal and down to Crimea uh, is, that Russia uh, destroyed the dam that the Kiev regime erected there back in 2014 to punish the people of Crimea for choosing wrong and, and deprive them of water. Um, so 
they say that um, Kiev has launched multiple rounds of HIMARS uh, at this bridge, but it's not actually real easy to destroy a solid, particularly a Soviet-built bridge. They kind of built them the last um, with with missiles, with rockets. It's it's actually really hard. They're pretty formidable. They can take some damage, but they can usually – that's not – uh, complete structural damage. They can usually be repaired, just surface damage. Uh, so um, there was fear that if they did manage to destroy that dam, perhaps by other means with uh, some underwater drones or mines, then that could flood the entire theater, including much of Harrison City, and then make it absolutely impossible for Russian supply uh, to supply forces there. So they specifically mentioned that as one of the reasons. Regardless, they did so. They did it in good order. Uh, they did it much faster than anyone expected. And, and again, I didn't expect them to pull out when they did, how they did, and. I, they certainly pulled out much faster than anyone I saw. Uh, so uh, that was well executed. It's not an easy military military maneuver, actually. Um, they did blow up all the bridges uh, that they had actually spent months defending and rebuilding, but they blew them up uh, on the way across uh, so that it now forms a significant geographic barrier for them and they can leave you know, a much smaller force behind and relocate that manpower elsewhere. Of course, the Kiev regime can and now I've also and heard, do the Mark, same thing. I've heard, I've heard Russia had no casualties at all from this. Uh, uh, you know, withdrawal. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, I've heard that they had no casualties at all. Uh, there was some huge disinformation the night that it was announced that a thousand Russian troops were trapped and they were being cut to ribbons on the uh, the banks of the Dnieper. That all turned out actually in even Ukraine uh, uh, channels eventually admitted it, that, that that didn't happen at all. I don't want to say that no one died. Um, uh, that that, that it, It's a war zone, right? Um, and it's a big area. Uh, and they also said that no equipment was left behind. Well, I... I I've also seen some pictures of what appeared to be some already badly, uh, you know, malfunctioning equipment that uh, that that may have been left behind. But if so, it was a few pieces. And if people died, it was an extremely small number. Uh, but I, I, I hate making blanket. No one died. It's a war zone. That's that's kind no, of silly. No, fair, fair enough. Fair enough, Mark. Yeah. And that's why you're a great guest, because you always are fair. And factual. So, Mark, do you think Russia will be back in Kherson city? I do not believe that this conflict can be ended without removing the regime in Kiev. Um, absent that, my definition, and I know a lot of, you know, Russian, uh, shall we say, government supporters, hawks, whatever you want to call them, patriots, um, uh, imperialists, or, or, or you know, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, I, I don't believe that this can end uh, one of two ways. Um, either Russia is defeated, which I, I find to believe unlikely. They've only utilized, they've just called up 300,000 reservists and they're only now getting them into the theater. It's seriously going to change the main problem that they had 
which was a manpower mismatch, which is silly to begin with because Russia has a population several times that of Ukraine. They have as, almost as many men, fighting age men of military experience in Russia that could be called on uh, as Ukraine has population. <laughs> I mean, uh, so that was always really silly for Russia to be fighting, trying to win a conflict where the regime had conscripted the entire male population of the country, uh, forbidding men between the ages of 16 and 60 from leaving the country. Um, you know, when they saw them doing that, they should have immediately been calling up the Russian reserves. Uh, it took them too long to do that. But now that it's being done, I expect to see a big Russian winter offensive, uh, maybe not in December, but certainly uh, no later than January, February. Um, I, I think season two, uh, as it is, is being called, is going to be uh, a, a very different ball game, and hopefully, uh, you know, both in terms of, of the rules of engagement, what can be targeted, seems to have been expanded with this new campaign against the Kiev regime infrastructure. Um, and uh, I think that these uh, added manpower that they needed is going to nullify the only advantage that Kiev had. So I think it's going to change things. I do believe that Russia will be back in Kherson, and I hope that they will be. Um, we've already seen, I mean, the Washington Post did even a report on it talking about the the hunt now in Kherson and elsewhere in Kharkov for the enemy within, the hundreds, the thousands of collaborators, right? Uh, Ukrainians who, you know, we're, we're happy with Russia there because this regime that seized power in their country in 2014 with open Western support, I mean, it. a lot of people didn't like it. Some, a, a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. And the country was pretty much split nearly 50-50. I think there, at the time there was a slight majority opposed to the Maidan, but um, according to polling at the time, but essentially split 50-50, which is why there has been a civil conflict in the country, uh, one side supported by NATO and one side supported by Russia for the last eight years. But the one thing that Western journalists will never ask, they'll report on these collaborators, these collaborators, these collaborators, but they'll never ask the question, why are there hundreds and thousands of collaborators? Why are there tens of thousands of former East Ukrainians fighting alongside Russians against the regime? Because that would that would start to unravel the whole narrative of this free democratic Ukraine under the government in Kiev and and um, that, you know, that all Ukrainians support and and it would all start uh, coming down. And that has been essential piece of the propaganda uh, from all dating back to 2014. So, Jason Goodman, um, we're about to lose most yeah. of our uh, because it's late there in Moscow. Do you have any questions yeah. for Mark before we lose him? Well, I just wanted to point out to Mark that he's talking about propaganda. And along those lines, I'm just checking here the Associated Press, the New York Post, and Bloomberg say Russian missiles cross into Poland and strike and kill two. Russian missile strike kills two in the New York Post. Russian rockets land in Poland, killing two on Bloomberg. But interestingly, the New York Times and the Washington Post more honestly say missile lands in Poland, according to Polish officials. 
So they're holding back from propagandizing this interesting dichotomy here in the major mainstream corporate news outlets. Yeah, a little more, a little more caution because I, I think that you know there is, again there is a lot of potential that this was not actually a Russian missile. It's not, it's not absolutely impossible, but I would say yeah. Here, Pentagon does not confirm, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So. Um, yeah, um, I, there are media outlets that are more, you know, um, uh, 24 hour news site clickbait and, yep. and less concerned about um, accuracy uh, and are willing to jump the gun on this type of situation, which is a really crazy situation because, you know, theoretically, I mean, Poland could invoke Article 5 of NATO. Right. right, which, which actually isn't what most people. But it has to. It means that all NATO has to act in some way, right? It has to respond. And so it doesn't actually say how they have to react, but it's generally assumed to be this mass collective defense uh, thing. I mean, technically they could. It seems very unlikely they will. And actually, back in March, there was an incident where there was a Romanian. Uh, fighter that was shot down by uh, Ukrainian uh, air defense. Um, and um, initially they tried to blame it on Russia, which was where it was. It was absolutely ridiculous. And then when that story kind of completely failed, the whole thing was just swept under the carpet and no one ever talked about it again. <laughs> uh, so it, it, and so there was the so, same so, thing with, so with Mark, drone strikes. It is late there. And we, we need yep. to say goodbye to you soon. Is there anything in closing that you think people should know about the Ukraine conflict currently? Yeah, it's not going to end anytime soon. It's going to go on for years. And whatever you may be hearing right now about a Russian missile strike in Poland, relax. World War Three is not going to start tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but there are people Thanks. who wanted to in the yeah. news. <laughs> yes, yes, there are. Yes, there are. And that's why we call it the fourth estate, because it is a center of power and and um, uh, it has its own agenda. And it seems to be inciting a war between NATO and Russia is a big part of a goal of a lot of the Western mainstream media. And Mark Svoboda, have a good night there in Moscow. Fantastic parents, as usual. Thanks so much, Mark Svoboda. Let's take a Thanks, short, short break, Jason Goodman. And when we come yeah. back, We'll talk more about what's going on. This is the backstory. And we're back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. So great appearance, Jason, by the great yeah. Mark Sabato. I like Mark because he does give it to you straight. I, I'd been hearing that people in Russia were not unhappy about the croissant pullout, but he sent me straight. And I don't want anything but the truth. So if yeah. more people in Russia are upset about that move, than I said, I Mark's there. He knows. Yeah, right. I don't know. So that's mm -hmm. why I heard. But I'm glad Mark set me straight. What say you, Jason? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's also very logical in his analysis. I mean, in addition to being there and having you know more information and more up-to-the-minute information and just sort of getting the general pulse of the local population, he's very logical in his analysis. And he really caused me to realize something you know, when he said that it's called the fourth estate because it's a power center. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I knew those things, but I didn't really think about it like that until he just said it. And the fact that it is a power center, maybe not the most powerful, but it does hold significant power. That is the reason why the deep state, the bureaucratic, ongoing, steady state, whatever we want to call it, that is why they would seek to control it. They don't want anything with any degree of power to be allowed to grow and expand beyond their control. And that's why in the 19th century, when Cecil Rhodes started to set up in Milner's kindergarten, that group of people, the Anglo-American establishment, the people who were establishing that, one of the people they pulled in immediately in the 19th century was W.T. Stead. W.T. Stead is a founder of modern journalism. He created the tabloid, and he also is responsible for investigative journalism. And that was a significant point, because newspapers were just getting going. Right. Does that make sense? There was no mass media. Right. And we take that kind of thing for granted, right? Like, I mean, everybody is guilty of it because it's like you think television and Twitter and everything was all around all the time. But like at some point, someone was like, hey, I'm going to write down the news and print up 100 copies and just give it out to everybody so people know what's going on. And everyone must have been like, what the hell are you talking about? Yes. And uh, they had to do a lot of things to keep people reading. For instance, Charles Dickens, the English author, obviously, you know, a, a million things, but uh, a Christmas story and so on. Charles Dickens' work was originally serialized in the Stead Papers. And right. they told stories, fictional stories, as a way of keeping people buying the newspaper. Does that make, it was the equivalent of yeah. you know, Netflix of the day. Does that make sense, Jason? Well, I mean, you know, also keep in mind, Lee, there was a time where just the fact that you knew how to read, it was like, oh, you're really smart. Most people didn't even have any education at all. So first we need widespread education and everybody being able to read before newspapers become even useful. Exactly right. If you're trying to reach a certain segment of of the population. But in that period, the 18th century, don't forget the 17th century was really forgive me. The 18th century, the 1700s, was really the part of history where the American Revolution and the French Revolution happened. And you start to see the people have more power than monarchy. Does that make sense? That was a right. big change. And that was recent. In the By the yeah. 19th century, that was still, had just happened a few decades ago. So right. they need to get in control of the masses. Does that make sense? Mass communication, they need to get control of the masses. What say you, Jason? I mean, this has been a topic that has interested me for some time. And I I started with sort of like a very uh, sort of zoomed in. In other words, the evolution of 
motion picture technology has always been fascinating to me. And I mean, if you just look at a, a, a close snapshot of the timeline, let's say from the Lumiere brothers inventing the cinematograph, which was the first practical motion picture projector to today, I mean, that's not a thousand years of evolution. It's a very short period of time. And as these uh, tools and technologies, you and I have spoken about this a lot, Lee, as these tools and technologies yeah. have been commoditized, even in our lifetime, the notion of doing a live broadcast from a remote location five or 10 years ago, you needed a satellite truck and all this stuff. Now, one person with a cell phone can do it. This changes the nature of mass communication. And that's very interesting to, to observe and see how it impacts society. And, and one of the chief things that the media needs to propagandize people on is the fact is they don't cover the story of the way the media has changed. They can't let people know the obvious truth that people today do not pick up the news main, mainly from CNN or CBS, ABC, right? People, in well, fact, I don't know. go to social media. But how and, many? And they I mean, that's people that you and I, that's people that you and I are interfacing with. But I, no, I, I wonder, I, I, I think there are still a lot. Well, no, no, the numbers prove it. If you look at the numbers of people who are not watching the news anymore. If you look at the ratings, the ratings have gone way down. And those people right. don't stop being interested in the news. But my argument is that you can see for sure. I saw this when I worked at the TV show Access Hollywood. We could see how ratings were dropping for the network. Huh. And so the ratings have dropped substantially. And you have to believe... Right. That that those numbers didn't go anywhere, and I don't. I know where they went, and so do you. Down, they yeah, went even further down. Right, right, right. And and the, those people didn't lose interest in the news. Yeah, but no, you're right. You know, I think people are somewhat have been forced by the media to be embarrassed to say that they get their media from social media. No one right. wants to say, I get my news from Facebook, because right. that's not exactly true either. Yeah, well, and it sounds like stupid. It's, you know, people want you to think they're reading, you know, whatever, national, you know, important stuff. But and Facebook doesn't Times. sound like that. Yeah. Or. Right. So, so I really think that it's one of the media's main jobs is to convince everybody that they are the only media. Is that they are the establishment, uh, you know? They come right out media. and say it. John King on CNN said to Jim Acosta and the audience that you know don't go on social media, only get your news from us. We're a trusted source. It's like what? <laughs> right. That's Wizard of Oz and talk. People, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And they can't admit that. They can't admit that. They cannot say that most people. And look. Just do an article, someone comparing the track record of what was said about Russiagate. And as much as RT and Sputnik, you're listening to Sputnik now, as much as RT and Sputnik get attacked in the media, we were right. And me in particular, I was telling the truth about Russiagate all the time 
since 2017. It's established. And I put my record up against the New York Times, up against the Post, up against any mainstream news source on Russiagate. I was right. They were wrong. Agreed, Jason? Completely, Lee. And it's not just a matter of being right and wrong. Yes, you were right. But you've laid out the thing in such a detailed and transparent way that other people can look at exactly what you're saying and understand why you're right versus these other sources that you're talking about where it's like, if I present you with the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something, am I right or wrong? It's just pure fiction. Well, we say something that I don't hear CNN or New York Times say. Don't take our word for it. Look it up. I say that all the time. And you see CNN, their new slogan is not CNN. Look it up. The last no, no, I'm telling want. you, they're, they're telling you the opposite. They're saying, don't go to other sources, trust us. Okay, Jason, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little about the G20. Jason, take us to the boom. This is the backstory. The show that is honored to have an audience of truth seekers. This is the backstory. And I really am, Jason. We have such a great audience. Have you noticed that? Yeah, we do. The calls are great, too. Where's Where are our callers? Well, so we have one of them on the line now, but let's get to the boom. Great. We want to thank Mark Sabota for being our first hour guest and yeah. telling us the truth about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine conflict. And again, you heard a lot of stuff here. I guarantee you, we'll come back to Mark in a few months and say, Mark, you called it. Mark is saying, this is a long battle, right? Yeah. Because Russia is essentially taking on the new world order. I'm saying that, Mark didn't say that, but I I don't want to put words in his mouth because he's plenty good at putting words in his own mouth. But (laughs) this is not, a short-term battle. Does that make sense, Jason? Makes a lot of sense, Lee, and everything that's happening in the United States and the rhetoric that we're hearing from the party in power seems to only exacerbate the problem. So, and uh, coming up this hour, the great Andrew Arthur, Judge Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, the best think tank on immigration in Washington, D.C. And that's all coming up and your calls, 202-521-1320. On what, Jason? This is the backstory. And in fact, let's go to those calls, 202-521-1320. The great killer of owls, Jason, is joining us now. Welcome. Owl killer. Yes. What's on your mind? Well, always good to call in when you got your best guest on. Hey, so... <laughs> I'll tell you, are yes, Mitch McConnell does look like a turtle, but he looks more like Mason Verger from uh, Hannibal. He's a guy who uh, <laughs> cuts his face off. Tell me he does not look you're like right. A oh, oh, you're right. After the fact, you're right. He does look yeah. like that guy. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's so. Um, Michael Savage was calling him uh, Moonshine Mitch the other day, and he's like, "That that should yeah. be the name that sticks." And that he doesn't want to lose his um, position as the. He likes being the minority leader. He doesn't want to be a majority leader because one, you got to revote on it, and then two, he actually has to do something. But you know, right. I noticed when you guys were talking about that uh, alleged Russian um, missile that hit Poland. Right on cue. Weird how that's right after the midterms. Imagine this was going yeah. on during during the midterms. You know that people would have to think, oh yeah, maybe World War Three really is a possibility with these uh, psychos that are leading the planet. You know, I noticed, well, uh, Mister Al Killer. Uh, Schwab. Let me say this Go too. L- let me say this too. The other story that knows waited till right after the midterms. Is the FTX story? FTX, exactly. A little about FTX. Obviously, the Democrats funded their entire 2022 midterm election push, including Senator Fetterman. A lot of that was paid for. Yep. By FTX. Who else? Right. Who else? Yep. And who else? Guess who um, had FTX on their website? Weird. The, the Ukrainian Economic IT Forum. Army, the Ministry of Defense the of World Ukraine. Economic Forum, the World Economic yeah, Forum. Yeah, I, I mean, this is down. so obvious. This is so obviously and a theft they, of money laundered through Ukraine, given to all these Democrats. They've spent two years convincing all of us that if you even question these election results, you're going to become a pariah. You know, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Carmine Sabia has an article out in the conservative brief, maybe just while we're live on air here, saying that Carrie Lake may still have a path to victory in Arizona. I haven't read this yet, but I know that Carmine is a friend of the show, and this will be interesting for people to check out on the conservative brief. Yeah, well, I, I'm I, still skeptical. I, yeah, right. I, I still think, well, look, you see who showed up at the G20. Did you see him walking in like a space alien, like? He actually looks like Klaus Schwab. <laughs> Klaus Schwab. He well, actually so, looks like one of those Mars attacks guys without the helmet walking yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, so you're right. Killer, you're right. Do me a favor. Hang on, because you've predicted the clip we have. So let's get the Klaus Schwab clip and stay with us, Al Killer, because I want to get your reaction to this. Hit it. If you look at all the challenges, we can speak about the multi-crisis, an economic, a political, a social, an ecological, an institutional crisis. But actually, what we have to confront is a deep, systemic, and structural restructuring of our world. And this will take some time. And the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. Politically, the driving forces for this political transformation, of course, is the transition into a multipolar world, which has a tendency to make our world much more fragmented. And for these reasons, events like this one, the G20, and so on, are the very important connectors to avoid a too great 
segmentation. So there's Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum arguing against a multipolar world because it makes it more fragmented as opposed to a totalitarian dictatorship ruling over the world. And that's not fragmented. What do you think of that, Al Killer? No, Alex Jones said about 20 years ago that nation states are firewalls against tyranny. And that's why they hate the nation state. That there has to be something illegal about that man. He's not a elected leader. What right. is he doing dictating world policy? Right. And why so do not gonna get, leaders care? You're not going to get any law well, enforcement. Exactly. Uh, no one's going to arrest him. What no, has he true. produced right? in his life? Yeah, what why do they care, made? Lee? Why, why, exactly. Al Killer raises an excellent point. Him? Why does the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Canada, all of these world leaders, why do they care what this unelected, who is and it? Why, who cares? Why are elected leaders, because why he's their he's boss, professor? because he represents yes, he the is. agenda that has been going right. on since the 19th century. He literally is taking the establishment, British, UK, European-centered agenda that's been in place for 150 years and that we see the CIA enforcing around the world. It's nothing new. Do you agree, Jason? Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. I, how can this be stopped is the question. So Putin's doing it. Putin is currently, do you know who doesn't want to be restructured this way? Yeah. Russia? Yeah. And right. China, and India, and Iran, and Saudi Arabia, you're seeing, and Brazil, you're seeing countries that do not want to be America's bitch, basically. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah. I, I'm putting it bluntly, but I don't know. But America is Klaus it's more, Schwab's it's bitch. It's more Klaus Schwab's. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. More, we're just the muscle for this. For the Anglo-American, for the basically the, the Anglo-American empire, we're, we're just the muscle for it. We take all the blame for it. And you no know, stuff trickles down like cheap gas. You know what I mean? Like all the, the and stuff like that. Oh, and you get cheap goods from China. Like that. That's what we get from the globalization. Meanwhile, our, our rights are our, our rights are robbed. They take our property. You know, we just get little trinkets here and there, and they're buying up all the farmland in the entire country. The, so, but, I could be, but go ahead. You know, we, we got to move on to Alcalor only because of time. But great call as usual. Thanks so much to Alcalor, part of our great community of listeners here on the backstory. Now let's go to calls 202 521 1320. And the great Tarif, our friend from Louisiana. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free June and signs. Um, there's a couple of comments I want to talk about. The first comment, okay, is going. I was listening to Durant Day they had on the attorney on today. Um, damn, I forgot his name. But anyway, he was talking about what's going on with the um the elections, the Congress, and it seems like the the rubber uh, cup Republicans going to have keep take the House and. The, the, uh, Ms. Green is making deals with McCarthy, and hopefully McCarthy will give her subpoena power to go after the FTX probably and Fucci and some other people. And by her doing that, 
she's going to be put on, from what I understand, as the lead person on those committees. And basically going to wreck shop. They're going to basically go after the, you know, these corrupt people in the government and, you know, that's tied to the, the DNC. So we'll see how that's going to play out. And hopefully might give me a chance, you know, that I come testify. Um, also, <laughs> the, the rock, <laughs> um, also, this, this is not my last comment, but for what I understand, DeSantos and Trump, for what I understand, <laughs> with the, um, the, um, but uh, the guy was saying that the lawyer that was on the Durant show, a game is being played, but they're going after both of them, trying to make it seem like right. they're fighting, but yeah. they're not. I don't really like, I don't like DeSantis' politics, but at the same time, sometimes you got to step back out your emotions and see what's going on for what's going on. Um, they're trying to break up the Republican Party right now by pretending that they, 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 they're fighting, but really they're not fighting. Um, but really, um, excuse me, um, they don't have no beef between each other. So we'll see how this is going to play out. My last comment is this Douglas McGregor. Carlos Let me Douglas make McGregor. one comment. Mm-hmm. Trief, hold, on, hold on one second. Let me make one comment about that. Jason, just hanging on a two by four in the middle of the ocean sound like a good vacation to you? No. Okay. Now, if the option is hanging on a two by four, or drowning because you're both sinking. Yeah. Just hanging by two, two by, by four, four. It's better. Yeah, it's better. Right. Little and better, so that's little DeSantis. Bit. That's right. DeSantis. He is a two by four. Now, I don't like his politics, but he is not sinking in the ocean. He's not going down Leo like with a ship. Does it make sense, Jason? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm willing to look at things like that. Go ahead, Tarif. Yeah. Uh, so okay, my last comment is this: Colonel Duncan Carter says something. He say, "I'm gonna repeat this what I said two weeks on your show before Lee, that NATO, along with the U.S., NATO, Poland, Romania, might put ninety thousand troops in eastern Ukraine. Excuse me, Western Ukraine." Because they already see the the writing on the wall that Russia will basically, you know, kick Ukraine butt. And to prevent that from happening, especially in Western Ukraine, they might put 90,000 troops as a start, like Vietnam, similar to like Vietnam. Then over time, they're going to increase it to more than 90,000. They're going to be 90 plus over time. They're just going to escalate, you know, putting more and more troops in there because the U.S., NATO, you know, Britain is afraid that Ukraine might just collapse, and they don't want that to happen because they already see the, the it's, it's been written on the road that Russia is going to win that war. So, it, it, Douglas McGregor said that because the Pentagon's talking about it, the NATO commanders talking about it, and they get nervous and they might put troops in Western Ukraine, and like it well, might happen. The, I, so he, I wouldn't surprise me at all. And Tree, we got to move on because of time, because we got someone else on the line. But great call as usual. The control of the world, world power is at stake here. We establish that. Right, Jason? This is for who yeah. controls the world. Therefore, yeah. the the world the US and the UK and the European powers aren't gonna give that up easily. Does that make sense? Yeah, we see it. Right. So they're gonna they they know what's at stake. But 
Let's go to another call. 202-521-1320. The great brave from Atlanta, part of our great community of callers on the backstory. Brave, what's on your mind? Hey, how's it going, guys? How are you guys doing today? I uh, just want to chime in a little bit on um, on what you, what you guys are talking about as far as media and media resources, where people get their media from. Um, I think that uh, I don't really think I think that um, it's a lot of a lot of young people, uh, younger people, um, and you know, uh, tech savvy people maybe are getting their um, their media or their news from online sources like YouTube and Rumble and things of that nature, um, especially when it comes to conservatives uh, specifically, right? But um, because because of, of all of the uh, censorship that you see like in the uh, mainstream areas as far as like uh, Twitter and things of that nature, but still, I think most most younger groups are getting their information from online, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting um, the best information. If, if, right. If, if you could uh, get what I'm saying, like like uh, so, when uh, Chappelle was on Saturday Night Live the other night, and he was doing his uh, bit, right, and it was funny. I it was Chappelle was a genius, brilliant, but. Yeah, but notice that even and I don't I, I struggle with this a little bit um, and maybe you guys might may have your opinions on it as well. He and in in being able to do his bit and um, and provide insight um, at, at a subconscious level, whereas you're, you're, you're taking it in and you're laughing, but he's giving you something to think about whether you realize it or not, right? Even with yeah. That, he still he still uh, placated the the narrative. He still went along with the you know Ukraine is an evil Russia. You know he still went along with that. Um, and well, but wait and a minute, brave, brave, to, brave. Go ahead. Hang on, let me stop you because I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And so okay, I'm Jewish. Obviously, Dave Chappelle is black, and he was talking about this whole thing with Kanye West and Kyrie Irving getting into trouble for saying things about Jewish people. Now, here is the thing. I've been watching Dave Chappelle, you know, since he was a teenager doing stand up and he has evolved into probably one of the most skilled comedians yeah. to have ever existed in earth because he's so intelligent. He, Dave Chappelle bridges a very important gap because if somebody, if a white person went on the news or TV or whatever, well, even if it's Joe Rogan, I don't care who, but you know, start to try to talk about this stuff. Dave Chappelle speaks to audiences. He transcends race. He transcends economic status. He transcends educational status. And he does it so adeptly that you really just don't even notice it. And I think the things that he said and the comments that he made were so insightful and so on the money. But yet, what you're talking about, I don't know if he was shilling, like you're saying he was still playing to the narrative. How do we know that Dave Chappelle hasn't himself been a victim of this propaganda? Well, so and that's, and that's I the think point I was. Yeah, Brave, do you right? agree with that? Because I think well, Dave Chappelle is friends with Ben Jealous. And Dave Chappelle is a Democrat. And so, but I think, I don't think anyone's paid him off to be that. But, right. Which, but he believes it. Right. Let's say you brave. Well, that's, well, that is the question. That's what I'm saying, the part I'm struggling with, right? Because um, he is very well informed, right? But, um, so, so to, to your point, um, he's able to, to cross over lines and, and um, 
bring up things that someone else wouldn't say, right? And in that in that um, in that bit that he did, what he also did was he fed you a little bit of what you would agree with in order to say what he to, to deliver the points that he wanted to make, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's, that's for me that's the question: was he was he not? Was he, did he choose did he choose not to fight the Russia Ukraine battle? No matter what his information is, right? Did he choose not, choose not to fight that battle? As to um, lay to lay a, a comfortable um, platform to to put the rest of what he was saying out, because if you watch the, I don't know if you guys watched the rest of the Saturday Night Live show, but a lot of his skits, it, most of it was terrible. Did, right, right. But no, the point that I want to make is the skits that that he did. There were there were points there below the surface, like where he gets the white guy to come on and replace him. So so then the white guy won't say certain, and they're talking about other things, right? Like, it's a joke, yes, but there's something there's something else there. When he did the skit with the uh, barbershop, whereas they're saying certain things, and you got the guy in there, and the white guy in there, or the Jewish guy, whatever, and he's agreeing with certain things, but then he says certain things, and it, because the experiences are different. And it's not just about the uh, the difference in, uh, it's not just about uh, whether black people say this or white people say that. I think it's, I think it's more about um, the difference in perception based on your experience and how it doesn't I always agree. fall down to racism. You know what I'm saying? And, right. and this is what I'm wondering if that's what he was doing. I don't, I don't think that. Well, well, wait, 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 wait. You're, you're sort of, you're, you're answering your own question because you see, I don't get, I mean, look, I don't know. I've never met Dave Chappelle who knows what's going on in his head, but he seems sincere to me. And I don't get the impression that he's doing all this stuff as a put on. I think because of his personal experience, he has a certain set of beliefs that, you know, a large part of it, it seems you and I and Lee might agree with. And then another part of it, we don't. And I see, I see this all the time with viewers of Chappelle. Let me just say this, Jason, and see what you think. With Chappelle, I think he's a very common sense person. When he's spoken out before on stuff like Jussie, he didn't buy the Jussie thing for a second, right? Because he said it's right. obvious. Yes. And also, he spoke out on the Me Too movement, and he said, uh, "Let's face it, women are sexually harassed, but I think the Me Too movement's going too far." And he yeah. turned out to be exactly right. No one should defend Harvey Weinstein, but when they make it out going after Louis C.K., you know, for doing something that was not the same as Harvey Weinstein. It's gone too far. And Chappelle talked about that. So I think he does not, he accepts some of it, but at the point where it's, for instance, the trans stuff, I don't think Dave Chappelle is biased. I don't think he's biased against anyone. In fact, in his special, he talked about the trans stuff. He talked about a trans woman he knew who's a fan of his, who he's friends with, who committed suicide. And I think he showed his heart in that. But still, he believes in free speech. And he thinks it's absurd. You should not be able to point out, you know, trans contradictions. Does that make sense, Brave? No, it makes perfect sense. I I would also wonder if... um I would also wonder if a part of it is because two things can be true. He, 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 he's, a, he's a comedic genius. He is very well informed. He is very intelligent. But 
um, just because he is who he is doesn't mean he's going to know everything. So maybe exactly. he's not as informed on the whole uh, exactly. on the Russia-Ukraine thing. Because I talk to a lot of people who are who are who are very people that I lean on for uh, for information for perspective, and they don't have. They don't have it all across. They don't know everything all across the board. And most people right. have no concept of the Russia-Ukraine thing because the media uses not just the news, but the reverberations throughout all forms of media, whether it's a TV show, 90 Day Fiance. They've got two people from Ukraine on there who were constantly speaking about how uh, Kiev was being bombed when Kiev was not being bombed. Right. I mean, now Kiev's being bombed. So depending on what you're taking in and what you're paying attention to, you may not be informed on everything. I'm not informed on everything. I'm not informed on a lot. No, 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 I got one more thing for you guys. I got one more thing for you guys, because Dave Chappelle said something that I think most people missed, and ironically, the ADL landed on him for this when I think he was actually defending a logical point. He said that, Dave Chappelle says he's been to Hollywood and there's a lot of Jews. And everybody laughed because it's true, there are. <laughs> and that's like saying, oh, I went to an NBA game and a lot of the players were black. Is that racist or is that a fact? But right. Chappelle goes on to say, you know, he's been to Montgomery, Alabama, and there's a lot of black people there, but that doesn't mean they run the place. And I said, see, that's interesting because when I was in Hollywood, I'm Jewish. I wasn't running the place, but there were a lot of people who weren't Jewish who expressed anti-Jewish sentiment toward me thinking that I'm somehow in charge of something because I happen to be Jewish and in Hollywood, and it's absurd. And Chappelle was pointing out that just because there's a lot of Jewish people in that industry, do the black players in the NBA control the NBA? No, it's mostly a bunch so, of old so white guys. Let me let me ask a question. Do Jews, are, are they in management or ownership of a lot of entertainment companies? And the answer is obviously yes. Jason. Right. Right. But just as Joe Biden is the president of the United States and Klaus Schwab seems to have control over him, I personally, as a Jew, have not benefited from this alleged Jewish control of Hollywood. It doesn't, so when people it doesn't, make it doesn't that work statement, like that. I know. So when people make that it statement, work like they that. need like to consider what Dave Chappelle was saying. Sure, there's a lot of Jews there, but there's a lot of black people in Alabama. There's a lot of black players in the NBA. Who is actually controlling it, even if it is a group that includes Jewish people? Does that mean that all Jewish people deserve the rancor of uh, people who don't like how Hollywood is run? I have nothing to do with it, and people give me a problem about it. I think well, that's the fog that, uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think yeah. that's the fog that the, uh, that the mainstream media and, 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 the, and both political parties I think that's the fault that they create. So then you can't have the conversation. You, you see what I'm saying? Because common sense exactly. says that every white person exactly. doesn't benefit from white privilege. It doesn't change the fact that there are things like white supremacy. It doesn't change the fact that, that there are things such as... Um, but my point, Brave, is that uh, I agree with you. But my point is not every white person is a white supremacist. And just because exactly, a white person exactly. disagrees with a black person or gets into some dispute doesn't make either of those people necessarily racist. No, that's, that's and true. Brave. That's correct. And that's, that's go. the fundamental truth. A great call, Brave. Jason, Excellent call. Thank Jason you. Jason Brave. Great call, yes. Great call. And again, our great community of Backstory Smart. listeners comes through. Smart listeners, yes. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, Jason and I will be talking to Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies on the Backstory.
are back and on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. This is the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is the backstory. And we're joined by guest host Jason Goodman. Hello. Joining us now, the great Judge Andrew Arthur from the best think tank on immigration, the Center for Immigration Studies. How are you, Andrew? Hey, I'm doing great today, and thank you so much for having me, Lee. So glad to have you here after the elections. So obviously, I don't think I'm going to ask you a broad question because I know you've been there a number of times. What's wrong with Arizona? I'll say this again. Uh, And let me ask about this, because they also elected John McCain over and over again, and he was one of the worst senators for the GOP on immigration. So is there something, and I don't know if there's an answer to this actually, but I hope the question makes sense. Is there something about Arizona that likes illegal immigration? Judge Arthur. No, absolutely not. In fact, um, you know, as I've uh, been through the Grand Canyon state, I've met with uh, many law enforcement officers, uh, many prosecutors, many landowners, and they're frustrated. They're frustrated with the uh, state of the Southwest border. They don't like what's going on there. They don't like the crime. They don't like the insecurity. They don't like, uh, uh, you know, everything that an out of control border, which is what we have today, brings with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, they don't like it. I would not view uh, the results of Tuesday's election, last Tuesday's election, in Arizona being indicative of what the people there think about uh, the border, or the state of the border, or Biden's stewardship of the border, it was probably more of a reaction to what they thought about the candidates who were on the ballot. Now, but, you know, Kara Lake, someone who clearly made immigration front and center in her agenda, and she said she's going to declare a state of emergency the day she gets elected. But apparently, she may still have a path, but she right now looks like she lost. So why didn't Arizonans respond to that message, that strong message, do you think? Well, you know, there were a lot of factors that went into the Arizona elections. And, you know, I am the uh, fellow in law and policy, and that carries with the politics as well. But uh, there were a lot of concerns about uh, the take that uh, both Ms. Uh, Lake, Blake Masters, who was the uh, candidate for Senate, uh, taking on Senator Mark Kelly down there, had on the results of the 2020 election. Of course, uh, the election in Arizona was extremely close. Uh, and I think there was a lot of spillover. I'll also note that uh, Ms. Lake had made an 11th hour comment about John McCain. Now, John McCain is actually uh, a man, uh, I'm not going to say that I knew him, but I worked with him and I was certainly in his presence many times. Uh, And he was actually um, very much in line with the people of Arizona. In fact, people forget when they look at John McCain's record when it comes to immigration and the border that, uh, you know, There was a famous commercial in which McCain walked the fence line with a local uh, law enforcement official 
uh, and saw what was going on. And the the tagline of that commercial was build the dang fence. Well, I wish that we had listened to Senator McCain when he said that. In fact, Senator McCain voted for the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which had brought a degree of uh, security to the southwest border, particularly in the Yuma sector all the way over in the southwest corner of the state along, you know, uh, the Gadsden Purchase. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it just didn't, uh, you know, it, there were a lot of factors that went into that election. You know, certainly the way that people vote there uh, and are able to get ballots in advance and cast them may have had something to do with it. I'm going to be honest with you, Lee. I've looked at this uh, election six ways to Sunday and I have a feeling that probably if you ask me the same question in six months, I'll probably have a more fulsome answer than the one that I'm able to give you today. Huh. It's funny, you know, the so, Secure Fence Act, to me, it sounds like the low-fat bacon double cheeseburger act. How secure is a fence? Well, the secure it, – it's, it's funny that you asked that question because the Secure Fence Act is actually a misnomer, but one uh, that has a lot of uh, saliency with what's going on today. The key part of the Secure Fence Act was a directive to the um, Secretary of Homeland Security to obtain operational control of the southwest border. And operational control was defined in that context as preventing the entry of terrorists, uh, illegal entrance, and uh, drugs and contraband into the United States. So. If one illegal migrant entered the United States illegally, the Secretary of Homeland Security was violating the Secure Fence Act and had to clean up his act. Well, of course, you know, we had 64,000 gotaways at the southwest border, more than 204,000 uh, migrants who were apprehended at the southwest border in October. The numbers just came out today. So that'll tell you that the Secretary of Homeland Security, one of Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, you know, doesn't have operational control of the southwest border. But up until the point that Republicans controlled one or both chambers of Congress, there was nothing they could do about it. Uh, now, when it looks like the Republicans will control the House, there actually is something that they can do uh, to respond to that. And I would advise Secretary Mayorkas that he should probably clear his dance card for uh, the months of January, February, and March, because there are a whole lot of Republican members that want answers. No, I, I think that's good advice for Mayorkas. I don't know if he's listening and he'll take it, but it's good advice. Let me ask you about something. We'll come back to Mayorkas in a second. But we had a story up here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that may not seem like, like it's immigration related, but I think is. A local restaurant, just a small Chinese restaurant, not a big place, was recently required by a court to pay $280,000, that's a quarter of a million dollars, to employees that they had not paid proper wages to. And when wow. I read there, that's a lot of money, right? Uh, They're going to go out of business. A, Who, what Chinese restaurant has that? <laughs> right. And just a normal-sized restaurant. But when I looked right. into it, the employees were all illegal immigrants. And Whoa. this is one of, and one of the dangers, I think, of legal immigration for people is that employers, because 
they're dealing with people who are not here legally and not working legally, not working under legal visas. They're more prone to be ripped off. And I would say, so Andrew, does it make sense? Is this an immigration issue? Yeah, it's very much an immigration issue. And there's a lot to unpack in that story, Lee. So uh, let me start at the beginning. The wage and hour laws of the United States apply to not just legal workers, citizens, lawful permanent residents, anybody who has an employment authorization document, but also to illegal uh, uh, aliens in the United States. So it's not a defense to a wage and hour action to say, well, that person was here illegally. That said, it's incumbent upon the owners of that restaurant under a law that was passed at the same time as the 1986 amnesty that we've talked about in the past uh, that requires employers to verify the employment eligibility of all of their employees. Um, so, you know, this is a situation in which that law is in tension. But of course, uh, you know, part of uh, the fact that employers like that can be sued for uh, back wages that they didn't properly pay is that if employers are going to skirt one uh, employment law, they're probably going to skirt a whole lot more. In fact, we, Lee, you probably heard about this. There was a case out of Nebraska on November the 9th filed by the Department of Labor against a company that provided cleaning crews to meatpacking plants in Nebraska and Minnesota. Uh, the The shocking part of this was that children, uh, you know, ages 13 to 17, 13 years old, they verified the identity of one of these kids through middle school records, were cleaning uh, meat processing plants at night, including using caustic chemicals. One of these kids who was 13 got burned by the caustic uh, chemicals. Now, the one thing that they're not telling you in that story is the immigration status of those children. But I will note that on page 11 of the brief that was filed in that case, 61 pages, and I read it all today, is the fact that the investigators who went to that plant to interview those children had to use Spanish language interpreters. Now, I have no idea what the immigration status of any of those children uh, uh, is because they didn't tell me what it is. But it would be rare indeed for a United States citizen or even a green card holder in Nebraska or Minnesota, who is, you know, in middle school or high school, not to be at least conversant in the English language. So, you know, again, I don't know what's going on there. I don't want to, you know, draw uh, improper conclusions. But you know, that's the kind of thing that we see. I think you know this. I was the employer sanctions counsel uh, for the San Francisco District Office of the former INS between 1994 and uh, 1998. And then I did the same job in Baltimore uh, for a year. And when I was in San Francisco, I had jurisdiction over two thirds of the Golden State from the uh, north border of Kern County all the way up to Oregon. Uh, and I saw a lot of these cases. And yes, you know, when you are violating one labor law, uh, including the immigration laws, you're probably uh, violating a whole lot more, which is why it was so shocking to me when one of President Biden's first acts was to put a stop on DHS raids at uh, places of employment. 
because if DHS knows that there are illegal aliens being employed at a place, there are probably a whole lot of health and safety OSHA wage and hour laws that are also being violated. Seems like the equivalent of what's called bro- broken windows policing. What they found right. is in in neighborhoods, you know, if you take care of the broken windows, the muggings take care of themselves, kind of. It, does that make sense? Well, police yeah, small no. crimes to prevent larger ones, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, in fact, I almost said bingo as soon as you said that. Um, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it is the immigration violation that's going to lead you to, you know, the caustic acid uh, that's being spread around by toddlers at uh, at places of employment. And, and again, once again, I don't know the uh, immigration status of anybody involved in that particular case. But yeah, I mean, and when the Biden administration, when Mayorkas tied the hands of uh, DHS, you know, ICE officers to go out and actually take a look at those places. We prevent those officers from, you know, identifying all of the other violations that are going on. One is, you know, when I was in law school, I studied labor law. I, you know, learned about the labor movement from the, you know, the Wobblies in the 1880s, the international workers of the world all the way up to the AFL-CIO uh, and, you know, the teachers unions of today. And the reason that we have those unions is that if we can restrict the amount of labor that there is available, workers can better negotiate for uh, the terms and conditions of employment. When you allow, you know, an unlimited number, and the Biden administration has released somewhere around 1.5 million migrants apprehended at the southwest border into the united states when you you know flood the labor market with you know largely unskilled and uneducated labor you're going to have a lot of abuses all of that trickle down effect from people at a party that contend that they stand up for the little man so yeah you are dead on correct you could not be more correct and that simply shows an additional trickle down effect of what are some very poorly thought out immigration policies. And so, Andrew, uh, let's talk about the first line of defense, the Border Patrol agents, because it seems to me like a number of administrations have been at war with the Border Patrol. And and Mayorkas, who's ostensibly, is he in charge of, of the Border Patrol agents? Yeah, no. Uh, Customs and Border Protection is an agency within the Department of Homeland Security. They report directly to the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, who reports directly to Mayorkas. So, yeah, uh, my, and Border Patrol. Border but, Patrol. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know the org chart well enough because it could be under, I don't know, ag or whatever. But so he's in charge of that. But it seems to me like he is in conducting a war on the Border Patrol agents. What say you, Andrew Arthur? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Over the weekend, Chris Magnus, who is the commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, uh, actually resigned under pressure from Mayorkas. Uh, You know, and Magnus himself, 
you know, I'm not going to say that he was at war with Border Patrol agents, although more than a few of them would probably tell you that. But, you know, rather than respond to this flood of migrants at the southwest border, May, uh, Magnus, who really didn't have any experience at all, you know, either in DHS or with the border, although he was, you know, police chief in uh, Tucson, Arizona for about five years, you know, he wanted to change the culture of uh, Border Patrol. This is not the time to change the culture of Border Patrol, even if you think that Border Patrol needs to be changed. I personally don't. I've been working with Border Patrol agents for 30 years. You know, I've been on the line. I've been out at night. I've been out in the rain in the middle of the desert with those guys. Their job and women, their job is horrible. They have a very difficult job. In fact, I can't believe we can get anybody to do the job. <laughs> yeah. It's also the most diverse law enforcement agency in the United States, if not the world. Somewhere around 50% of all Border Patrol agents are from the areas that they serve and are Hispanic uh, Americans. These are people who see what's going on in their own communities. Many of them come from Border Patrol families, and they've signed up to serve their own communities. For Chris Magnus, a guy from, I think, Lansing, Michigan, to come in and all of a sudden tell uh, individuals who are in an agency that is 98 years old that they need to change is a slap in the face. And, you know, to Mayorkas's credit, you know, he forced Magnus out. But, you know, I have a feeling, in fact, I wrote about this in the New York Post on Monday, that, you know, this, that, you know, Magnus is just a scapegoat for all the rest of these bad policies. When you talk about Mayorkas, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Now, I think he's at war with ICE officers and his, uh, you know, general counsel, uh, you know, has stated that it's an agency that's out of control. I believe that's a direct quote. Uh, so, you know, they're all interesting choices, to, you know, to serve in these roles. But with respect to Border Patrol, I think that, you know, Mayorkas is very much um, a pawn in a game that's being played in the White House. Uh, I think that there are a lot of progressives, uh, you know, younger progressives that Biden brought to Washington with him uh, who have their own ideas about immigration that just don't jive with reality. Uh, and, you know, so they're using... DHS is the little play toy for their social experiment, and it's not working out well. So uh, as an example of the war against them, Jason, do you remember the whipping incident? The yeah. incident where Border Patrol on horseback were accused of whipping immigrants. Remember that yes. a few months ago? Yeah, and it, it was just the reins from riding the horse. Yeah, I remember. It was still right. a picture of reins flying around. <laughs> And the video evidence showed that clearly. And yes, the this administration continued even after the, the video was obvious, not people being whipped. Andrew, am I right? Yeah, that's an example of the war on border patrol. Yeah. And actually, for what it's worse, for what it's worth, it's worse than even uh, you've described or as it's been ingrained in the public imagination, Biden. Uh, actually attacked those agents in real time, leaning over the podium and whispering in that way that he has, and I promise you they will pay. Well, 
you know, and Mayorkas turned around and said the investigation would take, you know, days, not weeks. That investigation actually ended up taking about 11 months. And at the what? end of it, CBP determined that nobody had been whipped. But, of course, they knew that in real time because the photographer who took those pictures went to them and said, yeah, no, I didn't see anybody being whipped. But it gets even worse yet because CBP attempted to have those agents prosecuted not for whipping anybody. Are you two ready? Not for whipping anybody, but for attempting to prevent migrants from entering the United States illegally. Wait, I'm not making that up. In fact, I, prosecuted the Border Patrol agents for attempting to prevent people from entering illegally. Isn't that what they are charged with doing? Yeah, it's actually right in their mission statement. And again, this sounds too crazy to be true. You could go back, you know, I wrote about this at the time that CBP's Office of Professional Responsibility issued their report. I was gobsmacked that they they literally referred this to the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas to prosecute the agents for attempting to stop aliens from entering the United States. And I'm the only person that's written about this. You listen to members of Congress talk about the, you know, that report. They're like, well, there was no whipping involved. And Lee, respectfully, you just made the same point. That wasn't even the most you know, egregious finding in that report. The, process, the attempted prosecution of those agents was. Indeed. It's absolutely so yeah, amazing. if you're looking for a war, if you're looking for a war on the Border Patrol agents, that's definitely an example. But Lee, just to go back to what you'd said before, I think it was you, not Jason, who said this, that, you know, this has gone on through multiple administrations. Look, you know, I served under, you know, under uh, administrations from George H.W. Bush, Bush one all the way through Obama. And I can tell you right now that, you know, each of those presidents up until the current presidency actually had the Border Patrol agents back. In fact, Jay Johnson, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security, a predecessor to Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, he had a quote in which he said that every morning he would get the numbers from the border. And if it was a thousand or fewer apprehensions uh, every day, it was going to be a good day. But if he got more than a thousand apprehensions, it was going to be a bad day. Obama stepped in in 2014 to open military bases to place family units, adults traveling with children, in custody to deter other family units from uh, coming to the United States because he knew the strain that that was going to have on the Border Patrol. This is Barack Obama. This isn't Donald Trump who did these things. Joe Biden is a sea change from every you know prior administration, you know, in my recollection and you know from everything that I've read in history. They don't have the back of the Border Patrol agents. That's why the Border Patrol agents are and, and look, you know, the men and women of the Border Patrol are diligent. You know, they 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 get paid pretty well, you know, based on what most people get. But I wouldn't do the job for the money that they get. They do it because they believe in the mission. But the morale there is in the toilet because Washington, Mayorkas, Biden, Magnus, none of those people have their back. It remains to be seen whether the Republicans who, again, it looks like are going to control the House of Representatives will have their back. But I can tell you right now from every member that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to more than a few 
they're waiting until January 3rd comes around to where Kevin, Kevin McCarthy has the, um, the gavel and they can actually make the changes and show those agents that they do support their efforts. So, Andrew, talk about the sheriff in Massachusetts. I've heard about this woman who does not have the border patrols back, correct? Talk about this woman. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there was a uh, new sheriff who was uh, just uh, appointed up in Barnstable County, Massachusetts, uh, who wants to, uh, Donna Buckley is her name, uh, who stated that she plans to move to end the 287G program uh, that that county has had with the Department of Homeland Security for a number of years. 287G is a program that allows local law enforcement to assist DHS uh, in enforcing the immigration laws. The, you know, it doesn't give everybody with a badge the right to make immigration arrests, but certain officers who are given proper training are allowed to assist in those immigration efforts. Uh, and Ms. Buckley was elected and she plans on ending the 287G program. And what, what effect will that have? It's going to have a horrible effect. In today, before uh, the uh, House Homeland Security Committee, Christopher Ray, who is the director of the FBI, was asked by Representative Dan Bishop in North Carolina about what's going on at the southwest border. And he stated, uh, what I would say is that we see significant criminal threats coming from south of the border, whether it's guns, drugs, money, violence. We see transnational criminal organizations that are sending their drugs here and that are using street gangs here to distribute it. And that contributes to the violent crime crisis here. By ending 287G, it's going to be all the harder for ICE officers in Barnstable County, Massachusetts, and in all of the areas around there to control the crime that Director Ray described in the House of Representatives today. I, you know, this is just, this is madness. This is nonsense at a period when, you know, crime is up, when the border is unsecure, to suddenly decide that we need to do less. I don't know what the people of Massachusetts are thinking, uh, but it's not the way that I would have voted. So, Jason, we're almost out of time. Great appearance by Andrew Arthur, as usual. Do you have any final yeah. questions or comments for the judge? Well, I think that was a very informative presentation, and I don't mean to divert from it, but while we've been live here, Poland has invoked Article 4 of NATO. So there's more things happening in Poland. It's not quite Article 5, but this allows them to call a meeting and say that they feel threatened. So I still feel like we're being baby-stepped to World War Three. By NATO. So, so okay, and thanks for that Comment. update on breaking yeah. headlines. But yeah. Marcus assured us in the show early, no nuclear war tonight. He did say that yeah. very definitively. Yeah, 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 he did. So, Andrew Arthur, where can people find your latest work? Well, Lee, I would uh, ask them to come to uh, cis.org. Uh, we have a, uh, a list. Uh, I would say that as Andrew Arthur, I'd be top of the list, but in reality, I'm number two after Mark Krikori and my boss uh, and a man who knows more about immigration than I will ever know. But I write daily. In fact, I have one coming out, should come out tonight or tomorrow, 
that will talk about the disaster unfolding at the southwest border, about the hearing before Homeland Security, about Secretary Mayorkas, and about an order issued by a judge in D.C. that ends Title 42. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. Uh, And again, I write daily because I want people to know what's going on. And that's CIS.org. And definitely check it out if you want to get smarter about immigration. Thanks so much, Judge Andrew Arthur, for appearing with us. Thanks, Jason. Great job co-hosting, as usual. And thanks so much to Mark Svoboda, who says we will not have a nuclear war tonight. So let's take that to the bank. Yep. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow. Jason. Bye, everyone. What do you think? I say this is the backstory, Lee. Thanks for watching, everybody. I mean, listening. Okay. Thanks a lot, everyone. (laughs) Talk to you tomorrow.